Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. I will also open the lines right now rather than the second half of the show so that you could ask questions or make a comment. And then following the show, you can continue this discussion on Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please like both pages. Well, tonight's show will focus on a book and research by author and professor Daniel J. Schultzstein. The title of the book is The Invisible Line, A Secret History of Race in America. And Daniel will discuss three American families and the secret journey from black to white. Daniel J. Sharpstein is a professor of law at Vanderbilt University. The Invisible Line, A Secret History of Race in America, has won three prizes. The J. Anthony Lucas Prize for Narrative Nonfiction, the Cromwell Book Prize from the American Society for Legal History, and the Hearst Prize from the Law and Society Association. Daniel has also spent the past three years, excuse me, the past year as a Guggenheim Fellow working on a new book. Now, as I mentioned, he will discuss three American families and the secret journey from black to white. Defining their identities first as people of color and later as whites, these families provide a lens for understanding how people thought about and experienced race and how these ideas and experiences evolved, how the very meaning of black and white changed over time, cutting through centuries of myth, amnesia, and poisonous racial politics. The invisible line will change the way we talk about race, 
racism, and civil rights. Now, I want to remind everyone that I have had a number of shows to examine the laws as they related to slavery, women, and children. Previous shows you may want to listen to are Freedom Papers with Rebecca Scott, Fathers of Conscience with Bernie Jones, Slavery in the North and Property Rights and Wrongs with Legal Genealogist Judy Russell. Last week's show, Ebony and Ivy with Craig Stephen Wilder. And Mixed Race Studies with Stephen Raleigh. Again, as I said, tonight's show will explore the invisible line by following three American families in the secret journey from black to white. So let me give a warm welcome to Daniel J. Sharpstein to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Bernice. I'm just delighted to be on the show with you. I am, I am equally delighted. Now, this is a topic that some of us perhaps have thought about, but we've just not talked about it enough. I can remember, and I think I shared this with you, giving my mother the 1920 census and just telling her, you know, go down, here's your name on the census, why don't you tell me about the other people on the block? And she looked at one of the names and she said, oh, they're not black. Excuse me, she said, they're not white, they're black, and they moved to California. And I said, do you mean to tell me they're passing? She said, absolutely. She said, that happened all the time. So this is one of the things we're going to talk about tonight. And I would really like to just start off by asking you, what prompted you to look deeper into this idea of race and crossing the color line? So that's a great question. That's a question that uh, it takes me back more than 20 years. Uh, so in the summer of 1993, I was in between my junior and senior year in college, and I had the opportunity to spend um, uh, five weeks of the summer in South Africa uh, working on uh, a nonpartisan voter education project uh, before the country's first free elections. And I was working with a group of longtime anti-apartheid activists, and uh, we had a lot of time to, to talk about all kinds of things. But one, one thing we talked about was the uh, race classifications in South Africa. And they talked about how every, everyone I worked with uh, had been classified by the South African government as African, uh, uh, which I guess was a, a black category. Uh, except for one person who had been classified as colored, uh, which was a, a category given to, to people who were of mixed race. And she said, uh, actually, uh, I'm not mixed at all. I'm entirely African. It's just that when the uh, uh, Population Registration Act was enacted in the 50s, the, the government sent around uh, people to, to do a census and sort of peg people's race uh, uh, and fix it for them. And uh, the person who was doing the census door-to-door -door was a constable who uh, knew this woman's father, uh, who had been a police officer, and they were friends, and, and the constable thought he'd honor their friendship and uh, honor his service by uh, maybe doing what he considered to be a favor. And instead of putting an A by their names, he put a C 
And, you know, that, that one category, that one really just, you know, one letter in a ledger book uh, meant that she lived in uh, a different kind of township, in a different kind of house. She went to a different kind of school. She only spoke English and Afrikaans. And, uh, you know, she was still involved in the same struggle as everyone else in the end. But it was really a revelation to me uh, to think, uh, you know, in South Africa, uh, we, we can think about race as, uh, you know, something that was uh, supposed to be absolutely ironclad. You know, it was backed by uh, the best that mid-20th century pseudoscience of race could, could muster. And it was also uh, guarded and supported with the, the full power of a modern surveillance state. And yet, and yet, uh, uh, in her case, uh, I could see that race was, uh, it could also be the product of uh, personal relationships and community dynamics or even just one man's whim. And when I came back uh, in the fall of 1993, I thought, you know, if this could happen in South Africa, uh, it just had to be happening uh, in America, too. Uh, and how did it happen? And that's when I, I first started looking at court cases where, where courts had to determine whether people were black or white. And I found a divorce case uh, from 1910 in North Carolina where the husband was trying to get the marriage annulled. Uh, on the grounds that he had unwittingly married a black woman. And from that point on, uh, th this was an area of interest to me, uh, and I felt like it, it revealed this whole new history uh, about how people thought about race and how people have been thinking about race uh, for centuries in America. Right, and what you're basically saying that race is, is very political. I mean, it's political, and, and it's also very personal. You know, it, yes. it, it so much has to do with, uh, you know, these uh, community dynamics and, uh, you know, in, in many ways, uh, you know, what kind of personal relationships that people have and what kind of function that people have in particular communities. So, you know, there, what I found was, you know, there are times when race in America is so high-pitched uh, the politics are so unrelenting. The violence is incredible. So, you know, if you think between 1880 and 1930, you know, there are times when an African-American was lynched in the South, you know, once every three days. And uh, at the same time, you know, these are moments when it seems like, uh, uh, you know, there's no room between black and white. Uh, this is just uh, uh, a, a unbreachable wall. Uh, at the same time, you see communities that uh, are, are able to uh, look past race in these very unusual and pragmatic ways. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are uh, progressive in any way. These, these weren't islands of racial tolerance. Uh, you know, what I found is that communities can, uh, uh, you know, they could be just as committed to Jim Crow 
Uh, before that, they could be just as committed to slavery as anywhere else in the South. Uh, and at the same time, they could see members of their community who they knew, uh, uh, either because of their appearance or because uh, they had been in the community for generations, uh, they knew that uh, their, their neighbors uh, had some African ancestry. And at the same time, uh, everybody seemed to be able to take a collective deep breath and define them as white. Right, and I have a, a comment coming out of the chat right now, and it says mm -hmm. the, the hysteria around race is still so intense, which is why there's such organized hatred of the current president. People are so committed to hate based on color. Another, oh, just, I, another comment just comes out. So the masses that individuals has is also understood. This is just a, a, a continuation of the comment about people mm -hmm. of color, and even if they're mixed, they're still dealing with these issues. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely true. And, you, you know, we're uh, you, you know, living in this quote-unquote post-racial era, uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, all through the uh, administration of President, o President Obama, we, we've seen just the incredible power uh, that that race retains uh, as a device for uh, organizing the, the opposition. Yes, yes. Well, I know, and, and obviously you begin your book. I mean, the, the inside of your book, you start off with the gene, you show the genealogy and the family tree of the three families. But you also share with us, when you're presenting the stories of the families, you, you take it through a legal angle to help us understand, well, just what's going on. So what I'd like you to do is to take us through some of the laws you uncovered as you research the three families to help us understand how those families, if, if you, for, for lack of a better word, made that transition or made that decision to go from black to white, and how were they able to sustain that in their particular communities? Sure. So, you know, when I when I first started thinking about these issues, uh, you know, really back when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, uh, you know, I think what we were all taught is that the American rule of race is the one-drop rule, right? Any African, yes. uh, any African ancestry makes a person legally black. Um, but what I quickly learned was that uh, it, the one-drop rule was really uh, uh, a product of the post-Civil War era uh, and wasn't really codified uh, uh, to any degree uh, until the uh, you know, late 1890s, the 19 aughts, the 19-teens, uh, you know, in places like um, uh, Virginia. Uh, Virginia didn't go to a one-drop rule to the mid-1920s. And uh, before that, there was just a, a patchwork of uh, ways that race was defined, and it was defined differently from state to state. So uh, at the turn of the, uh, uh, of the century, uh, or turn of the, the last century, uh, the African-American author Charles Chestnut 
uh, wrote a novel uh, called The House Behind the Fever. And in that novel, there is a young man who was uh, uh, of remote African descent uh, who was taken uh, under the wing of a local judge in North Carolina. And he becomes so useful, the judge at a certain point says, you know, you're talented enough to be a lawyer, uh, but, you know, here in North Carolina, you're, you're legally black. I think you should just go south of the border to South Carolina, and there you'll be white. And so, you know, there, there were states that had one-quarter rules, where if you had a, a black grandparent, then you were legally black. Uh, states mm-hmm. that had one-eighth rule, uh, if you had a great-grandparent who was black. A few states had one-sixteenth rules. Uh, there, there were states in the north that had one-half rules. And, uh, and, and these rules were, uh, you, you know, never uh, just sort of standalone rules, you know, a, a law saying, here's how we define race. Usually it was defined uh, in practice. And you can see uh, with these rules, not just how race is defined, but, but uh, you know, how it's defined by uh, differential treatment uh, between blacks and whites. So, you know, race is defined in the course of laws that uh, uh, forbid interracial marriage, right? Or race is defined in laws that tax African Americans uh, at a higher rate than they tax white people, uh, or laws that forbid black gun ownership, which, you know, in the antebellum era, uh, if you uh, can't own a gun, then, you know, it becomes very hard for you to feed your family uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, kind of uh, earn uh, money on the side. Uh, uh, a gun was a real ticket to independence. Uh, there were laws that made it hard to inherit property or to buy land, uh, or to testify in court. Uh, uh, and so, you know, these are, uh, you know, these laws are not just, uh, you know, drawing some kind of formal line, uh, but, but they also just show uh, to such a great degree uh, the fact that, you know, race uh, is uh, by and large a legal category, uh, and it's a category uh, that creates legal disabilities. You know, it, mm-hmm. it just creates. So you know, we can talk about uh, who's black and who's white, and you know, the stories that I tell just show how that that uh, racial boundary is just incredibly porous. Uh, but what stays the same is uh, the discrimination against blacks. Uh, so you know, to me, it goes back to uh, what. Uh, the great African-American scholar W.E.B. Du Bois once said, uh, which was, he, he said, people ask me, uh, what is a black man? And, uh, and he said, I, I, I say the answer is easy. Uh, the, the black man is, is the one who has to ride Jim Crow through Georgia. Mm. What is a black man? A black man is someone who has to ride Jim Crow through Georgia. Wow, that that's that's a powerful statement. It certainly is. But Daniel, let's just talk about these these three families because these laws and you use the term legal disabilities. I mean that that it certainly is a good description. 
But these laws really force people to to almost deny their African ancestry just so um, that I, they could have a better way of life. Right. I, I mean, I think one of the ironies of these laws is, you know, you can imagine the people passing these laws saying, you know, this is how we make whiteness, you know, the white race, an impregnable fortress, right? This is the yeah. way we, we create this absolute separation between the races. But at the same time, you know, because race itself is not a coherent category, because there's, you know, mixing in the United States from, uh, and in North America from the beginning, um, uh, you know, these are impossible categories. So, you know, by... Uh, creating these incredible boundaries, instead of keeping the races totally separate, uh, you know, they make it so horrible, uh, uh, you know, for so many people um, to, you know, live as African Americans that it creates this, uh, you know, incredible incentive, this incredible pressure uh, to cross the color line and become white. So, you know, you could say that these um, uh, these laws, uh, you know, fix African Americans in one place and fix white people in another place in terms of their legal rights. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it doesn't just separate the races. Uh, it uh, arguably turns people uh, into whites. Not only does it turn people into whites, but even those that may have a little tint to their skin, it turns them into creating these stories. And, you know, I want you to share, I mean, just some of the stories that people will give to justify why they're a little tanner than others uh, with, with the notion that they are denying their African ancestry, but they're creating a whole myth of logical uh to how they came about in the first place. So why don't you share with us some of the, uh, the stories you, you found uh, of which people would describe their ancestry. Sure. So, it, you know, one, one thing that we should know in the history of race in the U.S. is uh, it, there are a lot of dark white people. And, you, you know, maybe that's not surprising when we think um, – you know, a couple hundred years ago, people are generally working outside, uh, and people are in the sun, and, you know, who's light and who's dark? Uh, in a way, we think of it differently today than, than people did then. Uh, and there were plenty of people uh, who had to have a story uh, uh, sort of justifying why they're white. Um, so you, one of the families that I write about was a family called the Gibsons, and mm -hmm. they became white in the South Carolina backcountry before the Revolution. And around 1800, they moved to Mississippi and then to Kentucky and into Louisiana, and they ascended to the heights of the planter elite. And uh, one descendant of the family uh, once asked his father, uh, you know, why are we a little dark? And... Uh, he told them a story. He told them a story about how they were uh, they descended from uh, uh, a younger son of an English nobleman who had married a gypsy lass, uh, much to the displeasure of his father. And so he came to the U uh, came to North America. 
And uh, so, you know, that was, uh, uh, you know, one explanation. Uh, mm -hmm. Later on, when they were publicly accused of being black um, uh, in the 1870s, right after Reconstruction ended, um, they, this is when the family became um, very interested in genealogy. And one of the explanations that they got uh, for their ancestry was that they descended from Portuguese Huguenots. Um, and that uh, was a, uh, you know, Portuguese was a very common descriptor uh, yes. for people's complexions yes. in the South. I mean, in, you know, you, uh, there was a court case that I came across uh, in sort of far western North Carolina, kind of near Asheville, North Carolina, where you know, there's a sensational trial where um, uh, a family I sued, I, I believe, because, because the children had been excluded from the local schools, uh, segregated schools. And as part of the trial, um, several hundred cousins uh, uh, of the family were um, sort of paraded through the court uh, for the jury, presumably, to eyeball. Uh, and in the end, the verdict was they, they weren't black, they were Portuguese. Uh, you know, I think there, there were so many people who claimed Portuguese descent uh, that, that, you know, there was a category for people. People will say, yeah, well, that person's Portuguese and that person is Carolina Portuguese. <laughs> oh, boy, Carolina, that's a new one. Carolina Portuguese. Wow. Now, the whole issue, though, I mean, you mentioned the Gibsons, and I want you to say a little bit more about the Gibbs, uh, about the Gibson family because they were, I mean, in the beginning, you're talking about someone that was a dark-skinned person, mm -hmm. but that person was, quote, white, or stated, I'm white. How did that, the Gibsons manage to, to pull this off? Well, you know, part of it was they, the, the Gibsons descended from some of the first free people of color uh, in uh, British North America. Uh, and so in Virginia and Maryland in the 17th century, there was an entire community of people uh, who, um, uh, you know, for reasons, for all kinds of reasons, um, ranging from uh, the fact that uh, uh, early on it wasn't quite clear whether uh, tobacco would be a good product for the colonies to, to grow. And so there are booms and busts and kind of the, the, the economic pressure that a lot of um, uh, the planters and slave owners were, were under kind of allowed people uh, some wiggle room and they could actually negotiate better deals for themselves. This is, you know, sort of the first generation uh, of, of uh slaves in North America. And so there are some people who are able to negotiate their way into slavery, uh, out of slavery. Uh, then there are some people who, uh, Virginia law in uh, uh, 1664 uh, said that uh, uh, slave or free status followed the mother status. And mm -hmm. uh, and actually there, there were a uh, large number of uh, English servant women, by and large, who uh, were having children with African African slaves, uh, and their children were free. Uh, and 
you know, were some of the, the earliest members of this uh, uh, free community of color. And um, the genealogy researcher Paul Heinig uh, has documented this community uh, really beautifully uh, on his website, um, freeafricanamericans.com. And he has uh, uh, an excellent introduction, too, where he explains that story. Um, but what happens in the 18th century, uh, after uh, the racial categories um, become uh, uh, a little more rigid, uh, you, you know, through the, through the 18th century, as the economy gets better, uh, when the economy's good, things kind of relax for people of color, when free people of color, when the economy uh, tightens, as it does, uh, as it did periodically, pretty regularly, uh, but there were all kinds of laws that uh, uh, colonial legislatures would pass uh, that made life very difficult for these free communities of color, you know, really turning them into what the historian Ira Berlin called slaves without masters. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and at that moment, when, when things in Virginia got really terrible, uh, for African Americans, and, and you know you can look at different points, but you know the 1730s is one of those moments. Uh, these, this initial community, this charter generation of uh, free people of color, they're kind of put in motion, um, and they wind up. Uh, many of these families wind up going into Maryland and Delaware, uh, but many more um, uh, go down into North Carolina and South Carolina, and they're kind of moving um, uh, into frontier areas, uh, places where uh, they, um, uh, the government really, and the communities really need more bodies there. You know, they need more uh -huh. people cultivating land. They need more people to act as a buffer between uh, the coastal cities and the Native Americans in the interior. And on these frontiers where, you know, things are a little rougher, uh, survival is not a total given. Uh, you, you know, it, this is a place where you, people really need each other. Uh, they need to bring people in, and it becomes very costly there to discriminate on racial grounds. Uh, so if there's a family that will fit well in, a, in an area, uh, you, you know, in a way, the, these three families of color from Virginia were moving into places like South Carolina because uh, that was a frontier where they could own land, uh, where they could be a part of the community uh, and, and really uh, have something that it comes close to a full package of rights. And, and so uh, the Gibsons um, uh, wind up in South Carolina. And, uh, it, you know, what's interesting about the Gibsons is they come into South Carolina and uh, they've been free for a few generations, uh, and each generation, uh, the families made a practice of marrying white people. And uh -huh. uh, by the time they get to South Carolina, uh, they're kind of a, a, a uh, you know, they're a very multiracial clan. I mean, they're, they're all different kinds of complexions, and they confuse a lot of people. Uh, and uh -huh. they're... Rumors um, in South Carolina uh, in, um, in the 1730s when they, they are moving into the colony, um, there's uh, slaves actually far outnumber uh, uh, free people. 
And yes. there's a lot of paranoia, um, uh, probably um, uh, with uh, pretty good reason, uh, that uh, that the slaves uh, might not be happy and might uh, might rebel at some point. Uh, and at that moment of paranoia, the Gibsons show up, and you know they're this uh, kind of motley, multiracial group. And uh, people wonder, are they here to foment a slave rebellion? Uh, and there's discussion of them in the colonial legislature, and the colonial governor. Um, uh, has a personal audience with them to determine whether they can stay in South Carolina. And what he noted was that they had skilled trades, uh, they had owned property in Virginia and North Carolina, and they actually owned a few slaves themselves. Uh, and that was enough for him and he granted them several hundred acres in the South Carolina backcountry, which was in need of more colonists. And so they went uh, to South Carolina, where they could own land, where they could prosper, uh, where they could become rich enough that uh, you know plenty of people owed them money, owed them favors. Uh, and at that point, you know, it really didn't matter whether they were black and white or black or white. You know, what it really mattered was that they were planters. Yes. And obviously the planters had a status uh, in the community. That's right. And, and very quickly, uh, the, the children uh, of the, the Gibson planters in South Carolina uh, were able to marry into uh, the uh, elite families all around them. But you know the, the interesting thing about this family, though, and, and what you're you're basically saying is that, and you tell me whether this is what you're saying, but it, it wasn't their color. It was their uh, their skills. It was their ability to to move through the community, and just by the fact that they had an audience with the governor, <laughs> uh, would yep. tell you that they certainly had some status in that community. Yep, they, they definitely had some means, and uh, they definitely had some, uh, you know, what we would call social capital. Uh, and, uh, you know, but I, I think we shouldn't underestimate the fact that they own slaves themselves. And again, you know, in a way it compels us to redefine what race means. You know, it's not necessarily about drops of blood. It's really mm -hmm. about racism and discrimination. Right, so yeah. you know what makes you white is not, uh, you know, Euro European uh, bloodlines to you know the beginning of time. Uh, you, you know what what really matters. You know what makes a person white is you know they're the people who own slaves. Yes, they they are the people who own slaves. However, I mean you you always hear that yes. Blacks did own slaves, but sometimes it was their own family members. And mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I, I guess from a, from a historical perspective, we have to look. Were they then considered white because they owned slaves? Was that what made the difference? Right. So, you know, there, I would say in my experience, what I've seen is it, when people own slaves who are family members, you know, essentially to, to uh, free their family members, they buy people 
uh, you know, by their family members, essentially out of slavery. Um, uh, you know, that that is something different from, you know, people who uh, buy slaves as, you know, essentially as uh, capital investment, right? Uh, you know, this is, you know, there, there was so much wealth uh, in the, the slave economy. And so there are people who participate in that and there are people who don't, uh, you, you know, even if technically they, they own slaves. Um, you know, the Gibsons and, you know, there, there are plenty of others in South Carolina uh, and in Louisiana and in other places, too, uh, who, uh, you know, own slaves just as the vast majority of slave owners own slaves. You know, they own slaves uh, to work their property. They own slaves as, uh, uh, you know, essentially investments that could be bought and sold and hired out and traded. Yes. But, you know, I have comments coming out of the, the chat room, and mm -hmm. it, you made a comment that it's about racism and discrimination. Well, the color is still there. It's still an issue, and racism mm -hmm. is about color. So right. go ahead on. Well, it, it's, it's not necessarily about color. I mean, it's, uh, you know, a, a, I mean, it's certainly um, – the families that I write about were, uh, you know, generally light enough that they could tell a story that people could say, okay, uh, good enough. And, uh, you know, or they were, uh, you know, they might have some African-American appearance, uh, but, uh, you know, it, uh, you know, for they were ambiguous enough that, that you know, that, that appearance sort of kind of waxes and wanes depending on uh, the, the situation. You know, people will be white, and then uh, uh, their neighbors will get mad at them and, and call them black. You know, but so, so color definitely matters. Um, but one thing about race and the ideology of race is it's not just about skin color. It's about the... Uh, the sort of existential qualities that sort of attach to skin color, right? It's about what exists beneath the skin. And, you know, very early on, people are talking about, uh, you know, there, there are enough people who are uh, of uh, African and European ancestry, uh, enough people who are very, very light-skinned uh, that, you know, th there's... Uh, a, uh, there, there, it compels the uh, slave owners, it compels defenders of slavery uh, to make some kind of case uh, about why it's still okay uh, to enslave people who, by all appearance, are, are white. Uh, and, you know, in a way, it, it, that, that kind of masks the, the or it reveals the difference between uh, race and slavery. I mean, I think for, uh, you know, one reason why the color line appears to be so fluid before emancipation and then it becomes very rigid after emancipation is that, you know, the, the, the most important categories were not black and white. Uh, the most important categories were slave and free. 
Uh, and, mm-hmm. yeah, they, they were rough proxies for race and for appearance, uh, but they were not uh, by any means perfect proxies. Uh, and, but once slavery is eliminated, uh, you know, once, uh, uh, once we have the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment, uh, in a way, you know, the real project of American culture is to figure out a reason to perpetuate the, um, uh, the, the status hierarchies of the old regime, uh, but for a world without slavery. And that's when people really, in a way, when, uh, that's when people really embrace race as the key organizing principle. And you see that earlier on, right after the revolution and right before the Civil War. But those are also moments when the prospect of emancipation uh, is really ripe. You know, right after the revolution, the North frees their slaves, uh, places in the South, uh, Virginia, Maryland, Lots of slave owners are emancipating their 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 um, people they had claimed as their chattel, uh, and those are moments uh, when uh, people who are trying to justify the continuation of slavery uh, really start talking about drops of blood, uh, and and uh, and then after emancipation too. But those discussions are not so much about uh, uh, color. You know, they're really about, uh, you know, something invisible, uh, something that's under the skin, something that stays with you forever, uh, no matter, you know, what your children or your children's children or their children or their children look like. Wow. Well, you know, this is a very uh, deep discussion. And we're going to take a break. However, before we take that break, I do want to bring in a, a comment that was made uh, in the chat room. And it says, you know, if you were black and free, you could be captured and sold as a slave and have no way out of it. And you give an example in your book about what happened in Oberlin and mm-hmm. the fact that the community came together to protect the uh, black person in that community, but the laws were there that would allow a slave catcher to go in the community and, and basically take that person back. No, I mean, the, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, I mean, in so many ways, uh, it, it's, it was just an abomination, you know, in the, in the kind of uh, insecurity that it brought to African-American communities. And one of the amazing stories of the years before the Civil War uh, are uh, stories of uh, incredible courage, the incredible risks, uh, and you know, the incredible organization and militancy uh, of African-American communities, you know, communities that had so much to lose uh, and were so vulnerable. And my colleague at Vanderbilt, Richard Blackett, has written uh, uh, very movingly uh, about uh, the African American community's roles in abolition, you know, often we think about abolitionists, uh, and we think, you know, uh, white New Englanders who are uh, talking about, you know, uh, uh, the equality of man. Um, but you know, if we really look at who the abolitionists are, uh, you know, who they were in this country, uh, the, the 
uh, free communities of color uh, in the North and in the South just played crucial, pivotal, pivotal and you know, inspiring and courageous roles uh, in that history. Yes, and there's just one more question that's coming out, or at least a comment when appropriate. Will you address the validation of slave marriages and things like the MS Black Codes? <laughs> sure. Um, uh, should, should I uh, do that right now, or are we going into a break? Uh, we're going to take a break so that when we come back, that's the first question we're going to address. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. Black codes were, uh, uh, you, you know, you had to 
Uh, you couldn't leave the um, property of your place of employment. Uh, your uh, your employer uh, could discipline you for insubordination by whipping you. Uh, and in many ways, the Mississippi Black Codes um, uh, created, uh, uh, to borrow um, a title of a wonderful book, uh, created slavery by another name. Um, now, validation of slave marriages is a very interesting question um, because uh, it, you know it uh, was something that um, uh, it, you know for the legislators um, created a certain amount of uh, you know as a matter of administrative convenience. Um, uh, it was something that uh, though it, you know really compels the question. Uh, what does freedom mean? You know, we can see it as a uh, double-edged thing. Um, uh, on one hand, the lack of recognition of marriage during slavery was just such a, uh, you know, terrible uh, uh, front to the humanity of the people who were uh, claimed as slaves. Um, uh, but uh, it, so, you know, being able to legally marry uh, was obviously uh, a very important part of being free. Um, but at the same time, there, there were people who were um, not uh, married by choice uh, or to the people they would have chosen, you know, people who were forced into relationships as slaves uh, and to immediately legalize and validate and institutionalize uh, those marriages um, uh, you, you know, sort of kept people together who, who maybe didn't want to be together. Um, so, you know, in some ways, I, I feel like, um, uh, you know, what, what research I've done on uh, slave marriages and the Mississippi Black Codes, um, I, you know, shows that uh, a lot of legal issues aren't, um, I, you know, they, they have multiple consequences and not necessarily ones that we'd immediately predict. Um, one thing that, that's most important about the Mississippi Black Codes is by you know, trying to reproduce the hierarchies and relationships that uh, marked slavery, uh, you know, to such a precise degree. Uh, the effect was that you know, it really radicalized the North. You know, a lot of people in the North, uh, you know, they, they fought the Civil War and uh, seemed like the 13th Amendment uh, had been enacted, and that was enough. Uh, but once they saw uh, that essentially the former rebels were back in power and were mm -hmm. uh, enacting a set of laws that were reproducing slavery, uh, realized that the 13th Amendment, you know, liberty was, was not quite enough, uh, uh, you know, liberty just in name, and it really moved the Congress uh, to initiate radical reconstruction, and it really motivated the passage of the 14th Amendment. Mm-hmm. Yes, it, it certainly did. Now, I want you to continue to share with us about the three families because you, you did bring in three different stories. And I, I didn't ask you this question in the beginning, but why did you select those three families, the Gibsons, the Spencers, and the Walls? Yeah, so good question. You know, I, I essentially chose them because uh, you know, the, the families were both typical and extraordinary. So typical in that I wanted to capture the sheer diversity 
of the experience of crossing the color line. Um, so uh, I, I talked about the Gibsons um, uh, essentially crossing the color line uh, from a fairly elite position as planters, uh, and they were in South Carolina and in Mississippi and in Louisiana and Kentucky, um, and in Kentucky in the bluegrass country of Kentucky. Um, the second family, the Spencers, um, they became white in uh, uh, an isolated, uh, I guess in, in Nashville we call it a mountain holler uh, in Appalachian, eastern Kentucky, uh, before the Civil War. And they started out poor, and they stayed poor. And, you know, they logged and farmed their, their holler uh, until they went into the coal mines. And for the better part of a century, they hovered on the line between black and white. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then the Wall family, um, you know, they um, uh, crossed the color line in Washington, D.C. after the Civil War uh, as a, from position of, you know, educated professionals who were part of the rising black political class uh, during and after Reconstruction. Uh, and so, you know, I wanted to, to show that people were crossing the color line all over the country, you know, that this wasn't just a New Orleans story or, you know, a Mobile, Alabama or a Charleston story. This was something that was, you know, way inland in the mountains of Kentucky, too. Uh, I wanted to show that this wasn't just a uh, late 17th century story. Uh, so the Spencers uh, moved into their community and really assimilated in their community uh, but right before the Civil War. Uh, the walls uh, were, were um, uh, in a city uh, during Jim Crow. And, uh, and so I, I just wanted to capture that diversity. And initially I thought I would... Um, it, you know, I, I tried to log as many of these instances as I could possibly find um, in historical scholarship, in uh, old newspapers, uh, in really any kind of source that I could find. And, uh, and I sort of narrowed it down to 10. Uh, but then what I realized was it was possible to recover these families' lives in incredible detail. Uh, so. Yeah. You know, so these three families, they were broadly representative of the diversity of crossing the color line, but at the same time, there was so much material about them uh, that, you know, I could describe their lives and reconstruct and recreate their lives uh, in extraordinary detail. You know, the, the Gibsons uh, never saw a sheet of paper that they didn't want to cover front and back with their own handwriting. Uh, there were just so many... Um, uh, boxes and boxes of their letters that you just get uh, a sense of their world inside and out. Uh, the Spencers, um, they were, you know, it, uh, it, by and large, you know, illiterate subsistence farmers. You know, this is in the, the mid to late 19th century uh, in the mountains, uh, not necessarily a, a, a natural uh, source for lots of uh, uh, detailed material, um, and yet there was this amazing court case uh, in Virginia uh, exactly 100 years ago, 1914, uh, where the Spencers sued another family for slander uh, uh, because the other family, they, they were feuding, uh, and instead of fighting their, their feud with bullets, 
uh, they fought their feud with rumors. They went all over this one county in Buckhannon County, Virginia, uh, 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 very mountainous uh, uh, Appalachian, Virginia County, uh, and to spread rumors that the Spencers were black. Uh, and there's this long transcript that survives where uh, several members of the family and lots of their neighbors and people who knew them going back generations testified about, you know, what the Spencers were like, what their lives were like, what their reputation in the community was, how they acted among other people in all kinds of different contexts, from church to poker games. And it, so that was an amazing thing. Uh, and then the Wall family, uh, they, there, there are multiple trial transcripts. There are uh, multiple instances of detailed congressional testimony that the main figure who I follow, a uh, man named Orrin Dottis Simon Bolivar Wall, um, arrest mm -hmm. wall that, that, that he gave. Uh, and uh, as they were um, public figures in, to a certain degree, and there were just many, many newspaper articles too, uh, and, and some papers that survive as well. So these were typical families, but they were extraordinary uh, in terms of uh, the, the material that they left in the historical record that allowed me to, to reconstruct their lives. Right. And, you know, as I read through the, how you reconstructed the lives, it was very, very obvious uh, to me that the documentation is out there. I mean, you just have to do a lot of digging, but the documentation is definitely there, as you mentioned, through the newspapers, certainly the court cases. The courts provided so much information. Uh, about the the lives of the families, and just to think that a family would would sue and have others come in and testify was uh, just they just left that paper trail. I always say ancestors left footprints, where they certainly left uh, a great deal of of information about how the community basically was there to support them. And, and it's amazing. It's an amazing thing, you know, when, when, when uh, I, I'm sorry, when, when um, so many people are testifying in public, you know, it's one thing to think, well, everyone can look the other way when it's, when, you know, no one's really talking about it and it can all just be everyone's little secret. Uh, but here comes uh, a legal issue that brings everyone into court and everyone has to air uh, you know, all these things that they just kept quiet about. And what happened then? You know, you, you know, people can testify about how, you know, 50 years ago uh, everybody was friends and we regarded them as white, even though they're a little dark. And, uh, but, you know, once they're forced to say that out loud, once they're, they're kind of judged by a, a, a judge and a jury and these lawyers and all these public officials, uh, does that change things? And, you know, what was amazing to me was even after uh, there was such a formal airing uh, of uh, people's ancestries, uh, communities had a remarkable way of just going back to the way things were, you know, as if nothing had ever happened. Well, and, and not only that, but I'm just wondering, because... You have written this book. I mean, the information is out there that they uh, they were black and they, they are now white. 
what was the reaction of the families when they found out they had African ancestry? Yeah, so that, for, for me, that was something that I was, uh, you know, very interested in at the outset. Uh, and what I found was, with very, very few exceptions, you know, I was not breaking the news to anybody. Um, everybody uh, had figured this out uh, in one way or another uh, in the, you know, three, four, five years before I contacted them. And, you know, I started contacting people uh, maybe about um, uh, ten years ago or so. And, you know, when I, when I really started doing that, um, what I quickly learned was you know, the, the secrets of the ages are no match for Ancestry.com. You know, just about, uh, you know, I, I felt like all it takes is one genealogy buff in a family, uh, and it seems like every family has a genealogy hobbyist, and, you know, they uh, are searching Ancestry.com or, you know, they go to the public library and the 1850 census or, or 1880 census is, you know, searchable and free, and they think, well, I'm going to look up uh, my great-great-grandfather. And everybody talked about this moment where, you know, they type the name into the database, uh, the, the enumeration sheet pops up, and, you know, one woman talked about calling the librarian over uh, and saying, excuse me, but, you know, what are these three letters next to my great-grandfather's name, uh, M-U-L, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So everybody had had the experience of, of finding out, and they were all at different stages of understanding and processing this information uh, when I talked to them. And so yeah, the, the range of human emotion, the range of response, I think was, was, was pretty all over the place. You know, some people uh, were in denial, there must be a mistake, or, uh, you know, there's... Um, uh, some reason why we're listed as uh, mixed race that doesn't have anything to do with African-American ancestry. Um, there's some people who uh, would, would uh, actually said that this prompted you know, incredible soul searching, you know, and really gave um, them a whole new range of, of things to think about. So a lot of people said, um, uh, you know, they realized that all their lives, uh, you know, they had kind of lived in a world where race was something that wasn't really their problem, right? They mm -hmm. could just kind of tune mm -hmm. it out. Uh, you know, people lived by and large, as Americans live uh, by and large, in segregated worlds, and you just didn't have to think about race. And then all of a sudden, they realized, no, we all have to think about the race. This is all about everybody. Uh, you know, we are connected. Uh, and, you know, in, you know, and the uh, drops of blood are the least of the things that connect us. Uh, and so there are people who thought that this really, uh, you know, was very important and, you know, talked about ways that it, it had changed their lives. It was also cause for them to reflect on you know, how their families, you know, when their families did talk about race, how they talked about race. And so there, yeah. there's more than one person who talked about, 
uh, you know, rethinking uh, their parents' and grandparents' racism uh, in light of the family history of crossing the color line and assimilating into white communities. Uh, and then, you know, it, there were a few um, uh, responses I never would have predicted. So, you know, the first person I uh, write about in the book um, was a man who uh, is an avid genealogist and, you know, has done just a lot of uh, uh, tremendously interesting research on, you know, every branch of his family. Uh, and when he figured out uh, that he descended from OSB Wall, uh, who was this remarkable man who um, was born a slave, uh, became a shoemaker in Oberlin, Ohio, was an ardent abolitionist who became the, the first regularly commissioned captain of the Union Army, an official in the Freedmen's Bureau, an elected official in Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, really, uh, really one of the first graduates of Howard University Law School. When he learned about his, uh, his connection to OSB Wall, uh, his response was, what he said to me was, uh, you know, it, it made him uh, more racist than he had ever been in his life. And, you know, in, in a way... Would you it, please repeat that, what you just said? He, he said learning about his family history uh, and his ancestry, his African-American ancestry, made him more racist than he had ever been in his life. And, you know, in a way, the way, the way I sort of thought of it was you know, he was so committed to convincing himself that he was still white uh, that, you know, nothing made him whiter than uh, professing to hate black people. And, and we have and a comment that's coming out of the chat that's, that's basically saying what you just said. Some of the most vicious folks are whites who have black ancestors. Um, and, you know, for him, though, what was very interesting to me was, you know, he had this incredibly strong reaction, and at the same time, he kept researching, and he became incredibly committed to, uh, you know, getting his family's story out, uh, you know, sharing his research with people, sharing his research with me, uh, and, hmm. he, you know, okay. and in a way, it, it um, I, it, you know, it was something much more uh, than something that he was ashamed about or angry about. You know, it, it really did, uh, it, you know, I feel like step by step, you know, every bit of research that he did at a time, uh, it, you know, it did become deeply meaningful to him. So would you say the truth set him free? Boy, um, I, I mean, I think that it's certainly... Uh, uh, he, you know, he opened up, uh, he, you know, all kinds of different, uh, uh, he, he, you know, different issues for him to think about. Uh, I think in many ways, uh, it's, he, you know, I think it was a, a very positive experience. I, I think if you asked him, I don't think he would regret, uh, you know, the the his, you know, lifelong quest. Uh, for his family history. Um, at the same time, uh, he, you know, when I uh, was speaking with him, you know, a few years after he had learned this material, uh, you know, he was still deeply conflicted about it.
would that, yes, I, I can imagine. But let's also talk about just the generational reaction. What have you found uh, with the, let's say, one, the younger generation versus the, the much older person finding out for the first time that they have African ancestry? Has there been a difference? Yeah, so, you know, at a, if I have to generalize, you know, I would say, um, you know, you, you could imagine, uh, you know, people in their 70s and 80s being very hostile uh, to, to this information, very defensive, very upset about it, uh, you know, very much in denial. Uh, and then you would say their children, baby boomers, uh, think it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to them. Uh, and then for their children, uh, you know, they, they kind of shrug and uh, make it a status update on Facebook. Um, you know, that said, um, you know, that said, there, there, there were exceptions. So um, uh, I, you know, closed the book. Um, I, I finished the book with, with a um, uh, conversation with a woman named Isabel Wall Widmer. Um, who was, uh, she's uh, no longer with us. I, I uh, miss her very much. Um, and she's somebody who was nearing the end of her life uh, when, when she learned about uh, her family history, uh, which included her uh, mother, uh, who had to, as a little girl, her mother was put on the witness stand. She, she was kicked out of a white elementary school in Washington, D.C. Her father sued, and she was put on the witness stand uh, so the judge could uh, just just look at her uh, and, you know, figure out how white she was. Uh, and, uh, you know, she, she had never known this about her history. Uh, you know, she had never known about her African-American ancestry, her connection to civil rights activists and abolitionists and, uh, you know, veterans of the United States colored troops. And, uh, you know, for her, I, I think even though, you, you know, she was in the age cohort that, you know, was probably the most hostile uh, to this kind of information, um, uh, you know, for her it was just an, an incredible journey. I mean, she, she um, uh, thought of it as, you know, she was, an only child, uh, she never grew up with much family, uh, and you know, for for her, she said, uh, you know, it was really touching to me that, um, uh, you know, she, she she said that it, you know, learning about uh, her family, she she was just so grateful and so relieved, you know, and, and it really filled a, a void that she didn't know she had. Uh, just mm -hmm. to find her family out there, uh, you know, and, and really showed to me just, just how meaningful uh, uh, family history can be. I mean, she, she had a, a very open and, and very, uh, uh, very humane and, and really uh, inspiring reaction. Right. And, you know, we, we have so many people now, and I think you and I even talked about the, the whole DNA testing. And mm -hmm. many, many, many of of those who are African ancestry are not surprised at all when they find that they have uh, uh, white cousins. However, the reaction, the reverse, 
is one that we continue to talk about. And I, I was at the uh, Southern California Genealogy Conference a, a week mm -hmm. ago, and I raised the question, how many of you, and I, it was a mixed audience, how many of you of African descent are, are surprised that, first of all, that you have uh, mixed race ancestry? No one, absolutely no one. When we did the reverse, they were surprised. And it's just no. something that people have just not talked about. But it's, it's, I mean, it's coming up in everyday conversation. It's kind of the, the thing you talk about was your, your ancestry composition and, and what kind of reaction are you getting once you uh, share your ancestry, uh, share your genome with a person who's, who's white. Um, now, this, this is... Um, it, you know, we live in an amazing time. I, I think, uh, you know, the DNA technology, the um, these incredibly powerful genealogical databases, uh, these you know, tools uh, like uh, online chat tools like AfroGenius, uh, you know, gives us an opportunity to uh, learn so many things that people kept quiet about for so long. Right? We've, yeah. we've been, you know, whites. Uh, you know, we we people know about the one drop rule, uh, and in a way, it, it it you know that casts such a bright light. It blinds us to so much else. Uh, and you know, in uh, uh, in a way, you know, we live in a time now when you know more people know about this uh, than ever before. Uh, you know, more people know about this in their families. And more people have opportunities to talk about it, you know, more forums to talk about it and share uh, than ever before. So, you know, in a way, I mean, you know, 20 years ago when I first started researching this, uh, I don't know if I could have, you know, researching these kinds of court cases, these kinds of issues uh, more generally, I don't know if I could have written this kind of book, uh, you know, because it's just, so much, or, or at least write it in, you know, the, the relatively short time frame uh, in which I did it, um, they, yeah. you know, because these uh, databases just didn't exist. Uh, and now, you know, we're in this new era where, where people are, you know, learning their, all about their family history very quickly in these very abbreviated ways. And, uh, you know, the real challenge for us going forward is what does it all mean? That's right. What does it all mean? And how how does the conversation change? So exactly. we have a lot we we certainly have a lot to continue to discuss and we're at the end of the show, believe it or not. I mean the chatters have been chatting up away. But do you have any parting words you would like to share with the listeners before we end the show tonight? Sure. You know, this is a, uh, a family history show. Uh, uh, you, you know, you do remarkable discussion of, of uh, family history. And, you know, I just want to share a little bit, uh, which is that, you know, when I set out on uh, writing a multi-generational history and, you know, it really looked like it was becoming, you know, at the outset, uh, a genealogical quest, uh, I had a little bit of a moment of crisis, 
you know, in, in the course of my research, you know, many people have asked me if I've uh, ever done my own family tree. And, you know, the truth is I, I haven't. Uh, and, you know, for when I think about why, you know, it kind of forced me to ask myself why. Um, and for one thing, you know, it's a little bit hard to go back past my great-grandparents because uh, then everybody kind of disappears into, you know, various parts of, of Eastern Europe. Um, you know, my family is relatively new in this country. Uh, but, you know, I'm sure I could, you know, there, there are all kinds of tools for, for recovering those histories, too. And I'm sure I could reconstruct something. Uh, so why haven't I? And I think it's because before writing the book, I was worried that family history could be like your dreams, you know, in that they're really interesting to you, uh, but excruciating for everyone else. And uh, as I was drawn into telling the history of race through these family histories, you know, I had a challenge. And, and that was, you know, how do you tell a story that could appeal to a broader audience? And I think part of it is about detail and part of it is about context. And, yes. you know, I'll, I, I, and I think, you know, to, to talk about detail, my, my reluctance to work on family history was, I think, less about how particular it is and more about how generic and indistinguishable it can be. So, you know, stories about great uncles and third cousins twice removed, you know, they can run together. You know, everybody's born, most people marry, you know, a lot of men went to sea or got jobs with the telephone company or, you know, suffered from gout, and everyone dies. Uh, so, you know, I realized that for my book I had to know, you know, what did they look like, what were their typical days like, what were their politics, how did they talk, how did they write, who were their friends, who were their enemies, you know, what did they drink, uh, how are they like people today, and how did they see the world in totally different ways. And I found that the more specific I could get and the thicker the narrative that I could develop, uh, the more vivid and immediate my subjects became and the closer I could get to what they were thinking and how they felt about a whole range of issues. You know, you know we want more than just to name our ancestors. You know, we want to know and understand real people. And now we have all these tools for for burrowing in uh, and by finding the particular, you know, down to the minutest detail, you know, by being able now to essentially write a biography of, of an illiterate Appalachian subsistence farmer, you know, I think we can begin to, to reach for the universal. Uh, and, the, you know, I think that uh, in a certain way, you, you know, that can be an impossible task and family history is, is usually an act of recovery and reconstruction from fragments. And my one bit of advice is, you know, at a certain point, uh, when you can't turn inward anymore, uh, it was really useful for me to look outwards to context, you know, to larger yes. worlds and broader communities yes. that included our ancestors. And, you know, in the course of looking outwards, you know, whether it's local histories, whether it's, you know, looking through newspapers at the time, whether it's working at court cases at the time, you know, you can grasp the family histories onto something bigger. Uh, and, you know, you can learn a tremendous amount uh, about who your ancestors were, uh, uh, you know, at, at the same time. 
you know, it's a balancing act, it's a process, and, you know, it just became so much more rewarding to me than, than I ever could have imagined at the beginning. Yes, and we we talk about context, and certainly you put in the political, uh, what was going on in the community, and you really put meat on the bones. You you shared with us a life, many lives, and many people, and with the invisible line, once people start reading this book, they will perhaps start seeing their own family members in some of these stories and even get to the point where they start going back and reconstructing the story based upon the context because, as you said, context is so important. Well, I certainly want to thank you for coming on tonight, for sharing your research about three American families and the secret journey from black to white. The Invisible Line is available on Amazon.com. So those of you, please, if you're interested in just reading and studying and even understanding uh, what's going on with the whole transformation process of those who have made that decision to go from black to white, look at it, study it, understand some of those laws that were put in place. And I, I think that this is a conversation that we certainly will continue to have uh, long after we end this show tonight. So thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us the Invisible Line. Well, thank you, Bernice. Okay. Well, everyone, I want you to tune in next week because we're going to kind of change the, change the dynamics a little. We're going to talk about planning your family reunion. Uh, I have received uh, questions by people saying, Bernice, are you ever going to have a show on planning your family reunion? And is it just a party or is it more than that? Do we then plan that reunion, but also talk about our families, talk about the context in which our families lived, and just get everybody together to just examine just what's going on. So please join me next week. I will have my special guest is Kellyanne Jenkins. Also, I do have the July lineup already uh, up, and it's on my page, so please look at the July um, Line up, and, and you'll see that I have very interesting shows scheduled for the month of July. So thank you, everyone. Thank you so much uh, for coming on. Uh, I certainly want to thank Daniel Sharpstein for coming on tonight. And remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, community records, court records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on research at the National Archives and beyond and the AfroGenius Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to you joining me next Thursday night. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone.
Thank you.